While science has recently revealed that one's genetic predisposition clearly plays a role in an individual's characteristic way of responding to the world, most social scientists and psychologists feel that a large measure of the way we behave, think and feel is determined by learning and conditioning, which comes about as a result of our upbringing and the social and cultural forces around us. And since it is believed that behaviours are largely established by conditioning and reinforced and amplified by habituation, this opens up the possibility, as the Dalai Lama contends, of extinguishing harmful or negative conditioning and replacing it with helpful, life-enhancing conditioning. So conditioning is often seen as a negative thing. You know, we think of communism and brainwashing and that kind of thing. But um, we can condition ourselves, you know. I'm a strong believer in uh, constant self-learning and self-coaching as well. Now we move on to realistic expectations. Okay, this is Dalai Lama. You should never lose sight of the importance of having a realistic attitude, of being very sensitive and respectful to the concrete reality of your situation as you proceed on the path towards your ultimate goal. Recognise the difficulties inherent in your path and the fact that it may take time and a consistent effort. It's important to make a clear distinction in your mind between your ideals and the standards by which you judge your progress. As a Buddhist, for instance, you set your ideals very high. Full enlightenment is your ultimate expectation. Holding full enlightenment as your ideal is not an extreme, but expecting to achieve it quickly here and now becomes an extreme. Using that as a standard instead of your ideal causes you to become discouraged and completely lose hope when you don't quickly achieve enlightenment. So you need a realistic approach. On the other hand, if you say, I'm just going to focus on the here and now, that's the practical thing, and I don't care about the future or the ultimate attainment of Buddhahood, then again, that is another extreme. So we need to find an approach that is somewhere in between. We need to find a balance. So there you go, balance again. Dealing with expectations is really a tricky issue. If you have excessive expectations without a proper foundation, then that usually leads to problems. On the other hand, without expectation and hope, without aspiration, there can be no progress. Some hope is essential, so finding the proper balance is not easy. One needs to judge each situation on the spot. So yeah, judging it on its own merits. But really the the key part there is being in the moment and looking at it, just taking a step back and looking at your, um, it could be a problem, something that's causing you stress, or it could be your expectations. You know, are they too high? Are they too low? In the end, it comes down to them being realistic. Okay, this is the Dalai Lama talking about negative emotions. In considering how to fight against negative emotions, it's useful to know how the human mind works. Now, the human mind is, of course, very complex, but it is also very skillful. It can find many ways in which it can deal with a variety of situations and conditions. For one thing, the mind has the ability to adopt different perspectives through which it can address various problems. Within Buddhist practice, this ability to adopt different perspectives is utilized in a number of meditations in which you mentally isolate different aspects of yourself, then engage in a dialogue between them. For instance, there is a meditation practice designed to enhance altruism, whereby you engage in a dialogue between your own self-centred attitude, a self that is the embodiment of self-centredness, and yourself as a spiritual practitioner. There is a kind of a dialogical relationship. So similarly here, although negative traits such as hatred and anger are part of your mind, you can engage in an endeavour in which you take your anger and hatred as an object and do combat with it. In addition, from your own daily experience, you often find yourself in situations in which you blame or criticise yourself. You say, oh, on such and such a day, I let myself down. Then you criticise yourself. Or you blame yourself for doing something wrong, or for not doing something, and you feel angry towards yourself. So here also you engage in a kind of dialogue with yourself. In reality, there are not two distinct selves. It's just the one continuum of the same individual. But still, it makes sense to criticise yourself, to feel angry towards yourself, This is something that you all know from your own experience. So although in reality there is only one single individual continuum, you can adopt two different perspectives. The self that is criticising is done from a perspective of yourself as a totality, your entire being, and the self that is being criticised is a self from a perspective of a particular experience or a particular event. So you can see the possibility of having this self-to-self relationship. Yeah, it's interesting to think of... um, when we think of schizophrenia, we often think about someone who's been split into two parts. And of course, that is a severe case. And um, often that can lead to actions that harm yourself or other people. But um, I think it's a good idea to realise that we are all really split. When you're getting angry, for example, or you are succumbing to stress or any any other negative emotions, essentially that's your, you know, call them the angel and the devil, if it makes it easier to understand it. 
that's your devil side, which is probably also your ego side or your child side. And then your higher self, you know, you could call it your adult side, your angel, is essentially in the background or almost non-existent at that time. So it's really, really useful to think that we all have two selves and that our angel can win over our devil. Okay, so moving on. Here again is some discussion about um, religious approaches and non-religious approaches to finding happiness. Many in the West turn to religious beliefs as a source of happiness, yet the Dalai Lama's approach is fundamentally different from most Western religions in that it relies more heavily on reasoning and training the mind than on faith. In some respects, the Dalai Lama's approach resembles a mind science, a system that one could apply in much the same way as people utilize psychotherapy. But what the Dalai Lama suggests goes further. While we're used to the idea of using psychotherapeutic techniques such as behavior therapy to attack specific bad habits, smoking, drinking, temper flares, we're not accustomed to cultivating positive attributes, love, compassion, patience, generosity, as weapons against all negative emotions and mental states. The Dalai Lama's method for achieving happiness is based on the revolutionary idea that negative mental states are not an intrinsic part of our minds. They are transient obstacles that obstruct the expression of our underlying natural state of joy and happiness. So yes, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, if you watch a Woody Allen film, particularly the ones that he was in, I think in Annie Hall he says something like, um, I divide the world into the terrible and the horrible or something like that. But um, the Dalai Lama definitely doesn't go for that Freudian idea. And one of the things that um, is said a few times in the book is taking a negative state and then combating it, you know, putting something directly against it to try and negate it. Cutler continues, Most traditional schools of Western psychotherapy tend to focus on adjusting to one's neurosis rather than a complete overhaul of one's entire outlook. They explore the individual's personal history, relationships, day-to-day experiences, including dreams and fantasies, and even the relationship with the therapist in an attempt to resolve the patient's internal conflicts, unconscious motives, and psychological dynamics that may be contributing to his or her problems and unhappiness, the goal being to achieve healthier coping strategies, adjustment, and amelioration of symptoms, that's improvement of symptoms, rather than directly training the mind to be happy. The most distinguishing feature of the Dalai Lama's method of training the mind involves the idea that positive states of mind can act as direct antidotes to negative states of mind. So that's a better explanation of what I was just trying to say. At the end of that chapter, the Dalai Lama's idea of overcoming mental states with antidotes can be combined with recent scientific evidence that we can change the structure and the function of the brain by cultivating new thoughts. Thus, the idea that we can achieve happiness through training of the mind seems a very real possibility. Next chapter is called Dealing with Anger and Hatred. And there's a quote from the Buddha here. If one comes across a person who has been shot by an arrow, one does not spend time wondering about where the arrow came from, or the cast of the individual who shot it, or analysing what type of wood the shaft is made of, or the manner in which the arrowhead is fashioned. Rather, one should focus on immediately pulling out the arrow. And the arrows here represent the negative states of mind that destroy our happiness and their corresponding antidotes. So I suppose, yes, this goes back to something Cutler and the Dalai Lama were discussing earlier, this this idea that of this over-analysis, in fact, that the Dalai Lama's ideas that are cultivated through you know many hours of thinking and prayer and meditation actually come out much more simple and they don't involve over-analysis of all the factors around the thing that's happening. I would personally go with a, a mixture of the two, he says, sitting on the fence. So the Dalai Lama says, in thinking about anger, there can be two types. One type of anger can be positive. This would be mainly due to one's motivation. There can be some anger that is motivated by compassion or a sense of responsibility. Where anger is motivated by compassion, it can be used as an impetus or a catalyst for a positive action. Under these circumstances, a human emotion like anger can act as a force to bring about swift action. It creates a kind of energy that enables an individual to act quickly and decisively and can be a powerful motivating factor. All too often, however, even though that kind of anger can act as a kind of protector and bring one extra energy, that energy is also blind, so it is uncertain whether it will become constructive or destructive in the end. He says later, We cannot overcome anger and hatred simply by suppressing them. We need to actively cultivate the antidotes to hatred, patience and tolerance. So yes, uh, anger can be constructive. You know, it can motivate 
action to create, you know, for example, social change, political change. But uh, I suppose the, the anger itself doesn't know if it's constructive or destructive, if that makes any sense. So it's hanging in the balance there. So again, I think some, as well as the Dalai Lama's antidotes, I would say again, when you feel angry, just have a look at it, examine it and say, well, how can I take the energy I get from this anger and work it towards something constructive while not letting it overwhelm me? The destructive effects of hatred are very visible, very obvious and immediate. For example, when a very strong or forceful thought of hatred arises within you, at that very instant it totally overwhelms you and destroys your peace of mind. Your presence of mind disappears completely. When such intense anger and hatred arises, it obliterates the best part of our brain, which is the ability to judge between right and wrong, and the long-term and short-term consequences of our actions. Our power of judgment becomes totally inoperable. It can no longer function. It is almost like you have become insane. So this anger and hatred tends to throw you into a state of confusion, which just serves to make your problems and difficulties so much worse. So yeah, there is an expression, you know, mad with rage, so unable to think. Often people can sense it, it's almost as if they can feel steam coming out of a person's body, so much so that not only are human beings capable of sensing it, but even animals, pets, would try to avoid that person at an instant. Also, when a person harbours hateful thoughts, they tend to collect inside the person, and this could cause things like loss of appetite, loss of sleep, and certainly make the person feel more tense and uptight. So then uh, Cutler and the Dalai Lama engage in a very interesting debate about uh, whether it's better to let anger out. And the Dalai Lama said, Here I think we have to understand that there may be different situations. In some cases people harbour strong feelings of anger and hurt based on something done to them in the past. And that feeling is kept bottled up. There is a Tibetan expression that says that if there is any sickness in the conch shell, you can clear it by blowing it out. Similarly here, it is possible to imagine a situation in which due to the bottling up of certain emotions or certain feelings of anger, it may be better just to let it out and express it. However, I believe that generally speaking, anger and hatred are the type of emotions which, if you leave them unchecked or unattended, tend to aggravate and keep on increasing. If you simply get more and more used to letting them happen and keep expressing them, this usually results in their growth, not their reduction. So I feel that the more you adopt a cautious attitude and actively try to reduce the level of their force, the better it is. Now this brings to mind the idea that, for example, if you're a member of a gym, physical exercise can release anger. So what you're doing there is you are releasing it, but you're not taking it out on anybody. And I have to share with you something. When I used to live in Madrid, I had a period of going to the gym pretty much every morning. And I've always enjoyed boxing, not so much actually fighting, but the type of exercise. And I've done a little bit of sparring in my time. But uh, I started to hit the punch bag for about 10 or 15 minutes every morning at the gym. And I can't tell you how calm I was. I I wasn't completely calm. I'm not going to say that, you know, that's a magic cure either. But hitting a punch bag, because you're never going to defeat it. It's always going to be there, the heavy bag, you know. But I think maybe a release of anger. You know, it could be through uh, dancing, singing. It could be anything like that. But I think physical exercise is uh, something that is very, very useful in so many ways. I mean, you know, obviously there's hundreds, thousands of scientific studies to back that up. And I can't think of any situation where a physical exercise would be negative, except perhaps if you got addicted to it, you know, over-exercise. But uh, that's something that I would highly recommend. And there's some reiteration of the Dalai Lama's idea that you can get refuge and protection from the destructive effects of anger and hatred with the practice of tolerance and patience. And Cutler says, Once again, the Dalai Lama's traditional wisdom is completely consistent with the scientific data. Dr. Dolph Zillman at the University of Alabama has conducted experiments demonstrating that angry thoughts tend to create a state of physiological arousal that makes us even more prone to anger. Anger builds on anger, and as our state of arousal increases, we are more easily triggered by anger-provoking environmental stimuli. If left unchecked, anger tends to escalate. So how do we go about diffusing our anger? As the Dalai Lama suggests, giving vent to anger and rage has very limited benefits. The therapeutic expression of anger as a means of catharsis seems to have originated from Freud's theories of emotion, which he saw as operating on a hydraulic model. When pressure builds, it must be released. 
the idea of getting rid of our anger by giving vent to it has some dramatic appeal and in a way might even sound like fun, but the problem is that this method simply does not work. Many studies have consistently shown that the verbal and physical expression of our anger does nothing to dispel it and just makes things worse. But, uh, again, he's not mentioning their physical exercise, which is a way of, you know, it's the best of both worlds. You release the anger, but no one has to suffer for it. Okay, so we're going to end this section on anger with a, a meditation. So this is the Dalai Lama. Let us do another meditation using visualization. Begin by visualizing someone who you dislike, someone who annoys you, causes a lot of problems for you, or gets on your nerves. Then imagine a scenario in which the person irritates you or does something that offends you or annoys you. And in your imagination, when you visualize this, let your natural response follow. Just let it flow naturally. Then see how you feel, see whether that causes the rate of your heartbeat to go up, and so on. Examine whether you are comfortable or uncomfortable. See if you immediately become more peaceful or if you develop an uncomfortable mental feeling. Judge for yourself. Investigate for a few minutes. And then at the end of your investigation, if you discover that, yes, it is of no use to allow that irritation to develop, immediately I lose my peace of mind, then say to yourself, in the future I will never do that. Develop that determination. Finally, for the last few moments of the exercise, place your mind single-pointedly upon that conclusion or determination. So for those of you who have never meditated, obviously I would encourage you to do that. And you can go back to one of the previous episodes the joys and wonders of meditation. That was a two-parter I did. And um, essentially, if you get yourself in a peaceful frame of mind, then things that might seem very obvious or things that might seem ineffective, such as visualizing someone that annoys you, when you get in that state first, it does change it. And you will just simply not get, uh, I guess the modern expression is triggered. You won't get that because you've taken that time not to allow the trigger to happen, if that makes any sense. The next chapter is dealing with anxiety and building self-esteem. The human brain is equipped with an elaborate system designed to register the emotions of fear and worry. This system serves an important function. It mobilizes us to respond to danger by setting in motion a complex sequence of biochemical and physiological events. The adaptive side of worry is that it allows us to anticipate danger and take preventative action. So some types of fears and a certain amount of worry can be healthy. However, feelings of fear and anxiety can persist and even escalate in the absence of an authentic threat. And when these emotions grow out of proportion to any real danger, they become maladaptive. Excessive anxiety and worry can, like anger and hatred, have devastating effects on the mind and body, becoming the source of much emotional suffering and even physical illness. So we are starting, again in the West, to recognize this so stress-related illnesses i tell you 20 years ago or so most doctors that i've ever seen would have completely rejected that or given it short shrift at least this is cutler talking fear and anxiety could be a major obstacle to achieving our goals whether they're external goals or inner growth in psychiatry we have various methods of dealing with these things but i'm curious from your standpoint what's the best way to overcome fear and anxiety and the Dalai Lama says, In dealing with fear, I think we first need to recognize that there are many different types of fear. Some kinds of fear are very genuine based on valid reasons, such as fear of violence or fear of bloodshed. Then there's a fear about the long-term negative consequences of our negative actions, fear of suffering, fear of negative emotions, such as hatred. I think these are the right kinds of fears. Having these kinds of fears brings us onto the right path, brings us closer to becoming a warm-hearted person. I think perhaps there may be some difference between fearing these things and the mind seeing the destructive nature of these things. And after a pause, he says, On the other hand, some kinds of fears are our own mental creations. These fears may be based mainly on mental projection. For example, there are very childish fears, like when we were young and passed through a dark place and became afraid. That was based completely on mental projection. Or when I was young, the sweepers and people looking after me always warned me that there was an owl that caught young children and consumed them. The Dalai Lama laughed, and I really believe them. So yes, when we're children, we make up fears, but then apparently we mature. I'd question that. <laughs> I've often said, you know, adults are children who've read the How to Be Adults book. Not all the time, of course, but sometimes. We think that when we're adults, we stop doing that, but no, we don't. You know, we create our own fears a lot of the time. What you might be finding, if you've come this far with me, is that there is a certain amount of repetition in this book. But it's not really repeating the same ideas, it's that it often it comes down to the same thing. So whether you're dealing with anger, guilt, 
hatred, stress even, anything like that, it comes down to some fundamentals. But I think the repetition in this book is largely justified because sometimes you have to hammer the points home or you come from different angles to arrive at the same point. Okay. He talks then about anxiety, but again, it kind of comes to the same thing. You know, that's another negative emotion. So this fundamental way of dealing with it is valid in that case as well. He does say, uh, just like fear, there can be different types of anxiety. For example, one type of anxiety, which may be common, could involve fear of appearing foolish in front of others or fear that others might think badly of you. And Cutler asks the Dalai Lama if he's ever experienced this, and he says, oh, yes. Again, there's a nice sense that he's not taking himself too seriously. And he says... I think even these days, just before a public talk or teachings are about to start, I always feel a little bit of anxiety. So some of my attendants usually say, if that's the case, why did you accept the invitation in the first place? The Dalai Lama laughed again. So how do you personally deal with that kind of anxiety? I asked. He paused and we sat in silence for a long time, as once again he seemed to carefully consider and reflect. At last he said, I think having proper motivation and honesty are the keys to overcoming these kinds of fear and anxiety. So if I'm anxious before giving a talk, I remind myself that the main reason, the aim of giving the lecture, is to be of at least some benefit to the people, not for showing off my knowledge. So those points which I know, I'll explain. Those points which I do not understand properly, it doesn't matter. I just say, for me, this is difficult. There's no reason to hide or to pretend. From that standpoint, with that motivation, I don't have to worry about appearing foolish or care about what others think of me. So I found that sincere motivation acts as an antidote to reduce fear and anxiety. So there you go. When you have the right motivations, you can deal with anxiety. And continuing in that vein, in discussing the antidotes to anxiety, the Dalai Lama offers two remedies, each working on a different level. The first involves actively combating chronic rumination and worry by applying a counteractive thought, reminding oneself, if there is a solution to the problem, there's no need to worry. If there's no solution, there's no sense in worrying either. Again, that is situation dependent. It might be a bit insulting to someone to say, if you can't solve the problem, don't worry about it. So apply that to each situation on its own merits. The second antidote is a more broad spectrum remedy. It involves the transformation of one's underlying motivation. There is an interesting contrast between the Dalai Lama's approach to human motivation and that of Western science and psychology. As we previously discussed, Researchers who have studied human motivation have investigated normal human motives, looking at both instinctual and learned needs and drives. At this level, the Dalai Lama is focused on developing and using learned drives to enhance one's enthusiasm and determination. In some respects, this is similar to the view of many conventional Western motivation experts who also seek to boost one's enthusiasm and determination to accomplish goals. But the difference is that the Dalai Lama seeks to build in determination and enthusiasm to engage in more wholesome behaviours and eliminate negative mental traits rather than emphasising the achievement of worldly success, money or power. And perhaps the most striking difference is that while the motivational speakers are busy fanning the flames of already existing motives for worldly success and the Western theorists are preoccupied with categorising standard human motives, the Dalai Lama's primary interest in human motivation lies in reshaping and changing one's underlying motivation to one of compassion and kindness. Now this is something I took issue with, uh, with The Secret. There was that book and also the documentary. The Secret is about using the power of attraction to get what you want. And they had all these people saying, oh, I use the power of attraction now, look at my house. And there's a guy who says, look at my wife, you know, (laughs) this trophy wife. And yeah, okay, that's fine, you know, that's for success. Okay, if that's what floats your boat, then fine. But don't dress it up as a spiritual book when you're talking about a guy with a massive house using that as a symbol of success. Anyway, we're nearly there, people. Well, actually, we're not nearly there. I'm lying to myself. (laughs) Okay. Next part is honesty as an antidote to low self-esteem or inflated self-confidence. So there's some discussion of that keyword balance. Some people veer between low self-esteem and then overconfidence and arrogance. I read a fascinating book about um, a psychiatrist who treated Hitler. Now, Hitler was a lance corporal in the First World War and possibly to do with uh, shell shock and exposure to mustard gas. And in fact, the, the Rillington Place Strangler, John Reginald Halliday Christie, 
was also in World War One and, and was exposed to mustard gas. And I think that may need a little bit of um, further examination, that aspect. But anyway, Hitler was suffering from very low self-esteem. And this psychiatrist, over a period of, I think it was even just a few weeks of intensive therapy, this book posits the idea that this psychiatrist may have inadvertently created the monster that Hitler became. So he took him from low or no self-esteem to massive overconfidence. I'm sure the story is more complicated than that, but that is a fascinating book. This is Cutler. In the Western psychotherapeutic tradition, theorists have related both low and inflated self-confidence to disturbances in people's self-image and have searched for the roots of these disturbances in people's early upbringing. Many theorists see poor self-image and inflated self-image as two sides of the same coin, conceptualising people's inflated self-image, for instance, as an unconscious defence against underlying insecurities and negative feelings about themselves. Psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapists, in particular, have formulated elaborate theories of how distortions in self-image occur. They explain how the self-image is formed as people internalise feedback from the environment. They describe how people develop their concepts of who they are, by incorporating explicit and implicit messages about themselves from their parents and how distortions can occur when early interactions with their caregivers are neither healthy nor nurturing. Now this is very much covered in the Emotional Intelligence book, the Daniel Goleman book, and as I mentioned, if you were here at the beginning with me, I did a three-parter on that last year, so that's worth checking out. Okay, now the Dalai Lama talks about at the higher end of the self-esteem scale, when does confidence become arrogance? So he says, sometimes it's quite difficult to distinguish between the two. Maybe one way of distinguishing between them is to see whether it is sound or not. One can have a very sound or very valid sense of superiority in relation to someone else, which could be very justified and which could be valid. And then there could also be an inflated sense of self, which is totally groundless. That would be arrogance. So in terms of their phenomenological state, they may seem similar. So Cutler says, how can we distinguish between the two? Dalai Lama says, I think sometimes it can be judged only in retrospect, either by the individual or from a third person's perspective. The Dalai Lama paused and then joked, maybe the person should go to the court to find out if he has a case of inflated pride or arrogance. In making the distinction between conceit and valid self-confidence, one could think in terms of the consequences of one's attitude. Conceit and arrogance generally lead to negative consequences, whereas a healthy self-confidence leads to more positive consequences. So here, when we are dealing with self-confidence, you need to look at what is the underlying sense of self. I think one can categorise two types. One sense of self or ego is concerned only with the fulfilment of one's self-interest, one's selfish desires, with complete disregard for the well-being of others. The other type of ego or sense of self is based on a genuine concern for others and the desire to be of service. In order to fulfil that wish to be of service, one needs a strong sense of self and a sense of self-confidence. This kind of self-confidence is the kind that leads to positive consequences. Okay, now when dealing with um, low self-confidence, Cutler says, Fearless and honest self-appraisal can be a powerful weapon against self-doubt and low self-confidence. The Dalai Lama's belief that this kind of honesty can act as an antidote to these negative states of mind has in fact been confirmed by a number of recent studies that clearly show that those who have a realistic and accurate view of themselves tend to like themselves better and have more confidence than those with poor or inaccurate self-knowledge. Over the years I've often witnessed the Dalai Lama's illustrating how self-confidence comes from being honest and straightforward about one's abilities. It came as quite a surprise to me when I first heard him say in front of a large audience, simply, I don't know, in response to a question. Unlike what I was used to with academic lecturers or those who set themselves up as authorities, he admitted his lack of knowledge without embarrassment, qualifying statements or attempting to appear that he knew something by skirting the issue. In fact, he seemed to take a certain delight when confronted with a difficult question for which he had no answer and often joked about it. And uh, there's a little anecdote about someone asked him a question and he, he said, I'm confused. In response to appreciative laughter from the audience, he laughed even harder, commenting... There is a particular expression for this approach. The expression is, it's like an old person eating, an old person with very poor teeth. The soft things you eat, the hard things you just leave. So there was a question that was too difficult. In fact, he just he disregarded the question. This is an interesting thing, because um, a lot of self-development gurus, what they project is an idea that they have all the answers. And obviously, if someone pays for life coaching or therapy or counselling, there is a sense that they want someone who appears to have all the answers 
But in fact, there's a great learning journey between, um, for example, a life coach and a client and uh, even a therapist, you know. I mean, obviously, with if someone has chronic anxiety, they may not want a therapist who says, oh, you know, well, let's all learn together. But, you know, when you're talking about less serious things, let's say, well, not less serious, but um, things which seem to be more in your head than actually borne out by the reality, it should be seen as a team effort, really, between the therapist and the client, let's say. don't like that word, because then it, you think of it more as business, but the therapist and the patient, let's say. Think about this as well in terms of the media. We're going into the, the world of the outer truth part of life and life only. Media pundits on uh, BBC, CNN, whatever it is, those sort of mainstream media pundits, they will never say, we don't know. Again, they just project this confidence. I've got all the answers and it's all delivered this horribly slick way nowadays. Whereas podcasts, if you take Joe Rogan, whatever you think about Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan has long conversations and he's prepared to say, I'm not sure. And that's the power of it. And it's very interesting that a lot of people react against podcasts because that actually shows that they're conditioned to want mummy or daddy on the news to tell them what the truth is. Something to ponder there. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, this part is called Reflecting on Our Potential as an Antidote to Self-Hatred. And I was talking earlier, I think I mentioned Oscar Wilde and Mark Twain. You know, they're very known, Woody Allen, for these negative views of human nature. And they use it kind of comedically or to be very witty, perhaps, in the case of Oscar Wilde. So here's a famous quote. Groucho Marx once quipped, I'd never join any club that would have me for a member. Broadening this kind of negative self-view into an observation about human nature, Mark Twain said, no man deep down in the privacy of his own heart has any considerable respect for himself. And taking this pessimistic view of humanity and incorporating it into his psychological theories, the humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers once claimed, most people despise themselves, regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. And this is Cutler. There is a popular notion in our society shared by most contemporary psychotherapists that self-hatred is rampant within Western culture. While it certainly exists, fortunately it may not be as widespread as many believe. It certainly is a common problem among those who seek psychotherapy, but sometimes psychotherapists in clinical practice have a skewed view, a tendency to base their general view of human nature on those few individuals who walk into their office. Most of the data based on experimental evidence, however, has established the fact that often people tend to, or at least want to see themselves in a favourable light, rating themselves as better than average in almost any survey asking about subjective and socially desirable qualities. And let me say once again, television and advertising is designed to make you feel bad about yourself. I wouldn't uh, seek to correct Dr Rogers there and some of the other psychotherapists but I'd certainly say that the aforementioned Groucho Marx, Woody Allen, Oscar Wilde, they probably were getting some capital out of this negative view because in comedy it makes people laugh because there's obviously some truth to it. But again, I would say a lot of it is propaganda and conditioning. Okay, now continuing. Dalai Lama's response is, hate oneself. Of course we love ourselves. And Cutler says, for those of us who suffer from self-hatred or know someone who does, this response may seem incredibly naive at first glance. But on closer investigation, there may be a penetrating truth in his response. Love is difficult to define, and there may be different definitions. But one definition of love, and perhaps the most pure and exalted kind of love, is an utter, absolute and unqualified wish for the happiness of another individual. It is a heartfelt wish for the other's happiness, regardless of whether they do something to injure us, or even whether we like them. Now, deep in our hearts, there's no question that every one of us wants to be happy. So if our definition of love is based on a genuine wish for someone's happiness, then each of us does in fact love himself or herself. Every one of us sincerely wishes for his or her own happiness. Then the Dalai Lama talks about Buddha nature, the seed or potential for perfection or full enlightenment, no matter how weak or poor or deprived one's present situation may be. So Cutler then challenges him, what would be the solution for someone who's never heard of Buddha nature, or is not a Buddhist? Dalai Lama says, One thing in general that we could point out to such people is that we are gifted as human beings with this wonderful human intelligence. On top of that, all human beings have the capacity to be very determined and to direct that strong sense of determination in whatever direction they would like to use it. There is no doubt of this. 
So if one maintains an awareness of these potentials and reminds oneself of them repeatedly until it becomes part of one's customary way of perceiving human beings, including oneself, then this could serve to help reduce feelings of discouragement, helplessness and self-contempt. I think that here there may be some sort of parallel with the way we treat physical illnesses. When doctors treat someone for a specific illness, not only do they give antibiotics for the specific condition, but they also make sure that the person's underlying physical condition is such that he or she can take antibiotics and tolerate them. So in order to ensure that, the doctors make sure, for instance, that the person is generally well nourished, and often they may also have to give vitamins to build the body. As long as the person has that underlying strength in his or her body, then there is a potential or capacity within the body to heal itself from the illness through medication. Similarly, so long as we know and maintain an awareness that we have this marvellous gift of human intelligence and a capacity to develop determination and use it in positive ways, in some sense we have this underlying mental health, an underlying strength that comes from realising we have this great human potential. Okay, we are on the home stretch now, ladies and gentlemen. This is part five of five, and it's the shortest part of the book. Closing reflections on living a spiritual life. The first part is basic spiritual values. In helping us understand the true meaning of spirituality, the Dalai Lama began by distinguishing between spirituality and religion. I believe that it is essential to appreciate our potential as human beings and recognize the importance of inner transformation. This should be achieved through what could be called a process of mental development. Sometimes I call this having a spiritual dimension in our life. There can be two levels of spirituality. One level has to do with our religious beliefs. In this world, there are so many different people and so many different dispositions. There are five billion human beings, and in a certain way, I think we need five billion different religions because there is such a large variety of dispositions. I believe that each individual should embark upon a spiritual path that is best suited to his or her mental disposition, natural inclination, temperament, belief, family, and cultural background. And just to say, of course, since this book was written, the world population is something like seven and a half billion or even more coming up to 8 billion, as I said earlier. So he's looking at it, again, from the religious aspect. And again, this would be more for people of religious faith. I think that one way of strengthening mutual respect is through closer contact between those of different religious faiths, personal contact. I have made efforts over the past few years to meet and have dialogues with, for example, the Christian community and the Jewish community. And I think that some really positive results have come of this. Through this kind of closer contact, we can learn about the useful contributions that these religions have made to humanity and find useful aspects of the other traditions that we can learn from. We may even discover methods and techniques that we can adopt in our own practice. So you might be asking, you know, what if I'm not of religious faith? Well, I think the point he's making there of having contact with people who are different to you, that can work. You know, I'm sure we've come across that in the 98 hours we've been here. No, it's only not even four hours yet. (laughs) coming up to it though but uh yes making contact with people of different beliefs it doesn't have to be religious faith at all and of course what we're seeing now with the internet and social media is uh what they call you know the echo chamber of our own opinions you know we're sticking with our own people but you know i politically you know i don't really believe in left and right politics but obviously there are different political views and i tend to look at different forums and find people who may be diametrically opposed to me and that I think that does me a lot of good, actually, because not only do I learn from people that I never would have imagined I would be learning from, but uh, just to make contact with those who don't agree with you or don't have the same beliefs, I think is actually a healthy thing, as long as it obviously doesn't trigger you to behave negatively towards them. Now, there's an interesting passage in the book where the Dalai Lama talks about his own daily spiritual practice, and it amounts to about four hours. So it's prayer... He says, I myself repeat certain Buddhist verses every morning. And they said the verses may look like prayers, but they are actually reminders, reminders of how to speak to others, how to deal with other people, how to deal with problems in your daily life, things like that. So for the most part, my practice involves reminders, reviewing the importance of compassion, forgiveness, all these things. And of course, it also includes certain Buddhist meditations about the nature of reality and also certain visualization practices. So in my own daily practice, my own daily prayers, if I go leisurely, it takes about four hours. It's quite long. Then we get the question, what about a working mother with small children and very little free time? How does one find the time to do these kind of prayers and meditation practices? And the Dalai Lama says, even in my case, if I wish to complain, I can always complain about lack of time. I'm very busy. However, if you make the effort, you can always find some time, say, 
in the early morning. I think there are some times like the weekend. You can sacrifice some of your fun, he laughed. So at least I think daily, say half an hour. Or if you make the effort, try hard enough, perhaps you may be able to find, let us say, 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening. And if you really think about it, maybe it is possible to figure out a way of getting some time. Now, the thing about it is that I'm not a working mother with small children, obviously, but um, I think it's not only lack of time, but it's lack of energy. So take this working mother example. She can probably find an hour in her day to watch television that is not heavy, you know, television that's fun. And she deserves it. You know, I'm not saying she doesn't. But the interesting thing about meditation is that it's not actually work. It's hard work at the beginning, depending on what results you're looking for. If you're not looking for any results and you're really looking for a relaxation technique, it can work in that way. It can work to help you get to sleep, but really that's not the point of it. It's a relaxation exercise and eventually if you're quite diligent you can yield results so I think perhaps finding half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening may seem like you're finding time for some kind of chore something which seems a lot harder than watching comfort tv let's call it and eating comfort food and you know arguably we all need a bit of that but uh, I think as you said you can find the time and I think the results not necessarily in a very profound way but the results in terms of relaxation can be quite quick I mean, sometimes when I'm a bit stressed and I remember, I have five, ten minutes of deep breathing and a little bit of um, meditation slash contemplation, although they're not really the same. It's almost the opposite, because when you contemplate, you're probably thinking, and meditation is not about thinking. But uh, just five minutes of relaxation and deep breathing and can actually have an amazing effect. It's sort of similar in one way to having a nap. If you're very tired and you manage to have a ten-minute nap, it sometimes has almost magic qualities of restoring your energy levels in a short time. Meditation can kind of be like that as well. There's also a discussion about the strong mind surviving um, very harsh conditions. And there's a story of a Tibetan monk after this uprising who was in a Chinese prison and he survived torture and extreme pain. And it shows an incredible control of the mind. And I mean, another example is, you may well have seen the famous video. I mean, it's a horrific video of of the monk self-immolating, which is setting himself on fire in 1963. From the video and from, in fact, there's some testimony of people that were there, that monk did not make a sound. And if you can imagine setting yourself on fire, you know, the level of pain there is just unimaginable. And the idea that he didn't cry out at all, he had such control over his mind, you know, I'm obviously not advocating uh, taking it that far. I mean, that was done for a political reason as well. But... You know, it's possible to get incredible control of your mind. And it's not dependent on your upbringing or, you know, don't have to be a Tibetan monk or a Buddhist monk. Anyone can train themselves. Now, here's a story that I think is perhaps a bit easier to relate to than uh, that story of the monk. Many are familiar, for instance, with the ordeal of Terry Anderson, an ordinary man who was suddenly kidnapped off the street in Beirut one morning in 1985. A blanket was thrown over him, he was shoved into a car, and for the next seven years he was held as a hostage by Hezbollah, a group of Islamic fundamentalist extremists. Until 1991, he was imprisoned in damp, filthy basements and small cells, blindfolded and chained for extended periods, enduring regular beatings and harsh conditions. When he was finally released, the world turned its eyes towards him and found a man overjoyed to be returned to his family and his life, but with surprisingly little bitterness and hatred towards his captors. When questioned by reporters about the source of his remarkable strength, he identified faith and prayer as significant factors that helped him endure his ordeal. The world is filled with such examples of the ways in which religious faith offers concrete help in times of trouble. An extensive recent survey seemed to confirm the fact that religious faith can substantially contribute to a happier life. Those conducted by independent researchers and polling organisations have found that religious people report feeling happy and satisfied with life more often than non-religious people. And there's some more evidence about that. Now, lest this be, you know, a book trying to promote religious faith. And religious faith, he does, Dalai Lama does make the point as well that religious uh, organisations do start wars or wars are fought over different beliefs, some laughably similar almost. You know, you think about the Catholics and the Protestants, how many hundred years were they fighting with each other in England? So he does uh, make that clear, you know, he, he's not naive to that fact. But then, you know, being part of a religious community or really being part of any community. If you're turned off by religion for any 
reason. There are other groups, and a, and a meditation group is a good place to go where religion is not really even brought up, but it, it still has that spiritual element and that. Every meditation group I've ever been to, really, there's always a very nice atmosphere. It's people essentially showing their most peaceful sides, and there's some lovely, obviously, group meditation, the group energy. I mean, I did two meditation retreats in Thailand, and, you know, that's over 100 people. And you never felt like it was crowded for a second, but instead you had the energy of a hundred people dedicated to trying to improve their lives. And it was, yeah, quite magical, really. Okay, there's a description of a discussion that the Dalai Lama gave, and then at the end, Cutler says, "Thus, with a tone of complete conviction, the Dalai Lama concluded his discussion with his vision of a truly spiritual life." In speaking of having a spiritual dimension to our life, we have identified our religious beliefs as one level of spirituality. If we believe in any religion, that's good. But even without a religious belief, we can still manage. In some cases, we can manage even better. But that's our own individual right. If we wish to believe, good. If not, it's all right. But then there's another level of spirituality. That's what I call basic spirituality. Basic human qualities of goodness, kindness, compassion, caring. Whether we are believers or non-believers, this kind of spirituality is essential. I personally consider this second level of spirituality to be more important than the first, because no matter how wonderful a particular religion may be, it will still only be accepted by a limited number of human beings, only a portion of humanity. But as long as we are human beings, as long as we are members of the human family, all of us really need these basic spiritual values. Without these, human existence remains hard, very dry. As a result, none of us can be a happy person. Our whole family will suffer, and then eventually society will be more troubled. So it becomes clear that cultivating these kinds of basic spiritual values becomes crucial. Now, you may be thinking, of course, well, I know someone who lived to a ripe old age and was very happy who didn't have spiritual values. And that's fine, but you might find that, in fact, they did. But they just didn't call it that. You know, they didn't meditate or they didn't pray. But... Um, you will probably find that they did have these basic qualities. So the ones he mentioned were goodness, kindness, compassion, and caring. Now there's a short chapter later on. All of the virtuous states of mind, compassion, tolerance, forgiveness, caring, and so on, these mental qualities are genuine dharma, or genuine spiritual qualities, because all of these internal mental qualities cannot coexist with ill feelings or negative states of mind. So, engaging in training or a method of bringing about inner discipline within one's mind is the essence of a religious life, an inner discipline that has the purpose of cultivating these positive mental states. Thus, whether one leads a spiritual life depends on whether one has been successful in bringing about that disciplined, tamed state of mind and translating that state of mind into one's daily actions. Now, there is a thing that's become popular in the West called mindfulness, and mindfulness really is uh, inextricably linked with meditation, but perhaps it's caught on because there's still some scepticism, maybe even some fear of meditation, that it's some kind of cult. And um, in fact, I had an experience of that when I was in Italy. There was a listening exercise when I was teaching English, and it was a meditation on uh, eating a chocolate bar. And my poor students, who were a group of teenagers, they had to listen to someone describing how wonderful it was to eat a chocolate bar very slowly and to savour every moment of it. And you can imagine how that would drive some teenagers crazy. But one of them actually said, oh, you know, is this a cult? And I was, well, no, it's just um, doing something with full awareness. Yeah, that's what it is. So I think if you are, for whatever reason, put off by the word meditation or what the practice seems to mean, then mindfulness is another avenue to go down, which is almost the same, in fact. It's interesting, though, how, again, the West is slowly accepting eastern practices let's call it you know whether it's reflexology yoga acupuncture any of those meditation and then of course you now you have businessmen doing tai chi in the park on their lunch break you know it's incredible i think i'm going to close there in fact i was going to read the last part of the book but then it will uh, somewhat spoil it won't it so i would encourage you to read the book obviously i've read a fair amount of it but it's actually a small fraction if you think about how long the audiobook would have been, however long I've done here, three and a half, four hours, whatever it turns out to be after I've edited it, it's only a small part, so I would recommend the book. Now, before I go, I just wanted to say that um, I am a life coach, and if anyone listening to this, or anyone they know, is interested in life coaching, please contact me at lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. I'm also going to put in the show notes my website, which in fact includes my blog and my music as well, 
and my three podcasts, the other two being about John Lennon and about films. And I also include the the page I've got on Fiverr.com, which describes my life coaching style, you know, the sessions that you could have. It's also a, a very competitive price because I did a diploma relatively recently, but I've also got 30 years or more of psychology knowledge and um, a meditation visualization may be a part of it. It depends on what the person is looking for. I don't really want to speak for other people, but broadly you could say there were maybe three types of life coaching and there's some crossover with counseling as well, but I'm not a trained counselor, so I'm not offering those sessions. But um, some coaching involves what I almost call the sledgehammer positivity. The coach just fills you with so much positivity that you can't help but feel better in that moment. But I think it's almost similar to something the Dalai Lama was saying in the book, that that will probably not yield long-term results. It will make you feel better at that time, and you may be buzzing for a certain amount of time after the session, but there has to be some substance to it. And I'm not saying that coaches who have that style don't have the substance. I'm sure they do. But uh, another style would be tough love, I suppose, which again would work with some people, but for very sensitive people, I'm not sure that really works. So my approach is probably somewhere in the middle. I'd say it's quite calm, it's uh, realistic, but it's also friendly and it's patient. And I'd like to think I'd bring some compassion to it. So if you are interested or you know anyone who's interested, then please contact me. And apart from that, I just want to say thank you very much for listening, especially if you listen through the whole thing. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a journey. I hope you've enjoyed it. The next episode is both a departure from this one, but also a return to the subject of the episodes I did before The Art of Happiness. And that was Nick Drake. And it was uh, I was very lucky to be able to talk to Patrick Humphreys, who wrote the first biography of Nick Drake. And uh, by the time this is going out, I'm pretty sure that talk will actually be on YouTube. So you may have come across it, but if you haven't, it'll be in podcast form. That'll be the next episode of Life of My Family. So, okay, one more time. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.